Game Cool Books, episode 73. You meant the very opposite. Sorry it's taken so long to get to these very short chapters, but we're back today at last. Chapters 28, Midnight, and 29, The Battle on the Plain. Chapter 28 begins with a quote from John Keats, his Ode to a Nightingale. For many a time I have been half in love with easeful death. Keats is our touchstone for the idea of negative capability, a very important idea for Pullman and his characters, primarily Mary Malone, who tells Lyra about it, and Lyra in turn will tell Will. The idea here is actually associated with Mrs. Coulter, of all people. And those two characters make an interesting set of counterparts. They're both scientists, and both, at least for a time in Mary's life, and Mrs. Coulter's, both were very religious as well. Of course, the defining contrast between them is Mrs. Coulter's motherhood and Mary's solitariness. However, as we'll see by the end, Mary becomes a kind of surrogate mother. And Mrs. Coulter, in this chapter, talks about longing to have been a better mother. The phrase midnight, or the word rather, will come up in the poem as well. Uh, and of course, the nightingale demon we'll see in a minute here. All in all, a very interesting bit of Keats for Pullman to choose at this critical moment in the story. We're coming to the final battle, of course, but this poem is very much a kind of reverie, not particularly action-packed. This chapter is the calm before the storm. We're back with Mrs. Coulter, although Azriel, of course, calls her Marissa, after his rescue of her at St. Jean Lezeau and the bomb detonating. He tells her to wake up, but she's not asleep. They're flying back and almost to the fortress. The angel, Zephania, is right outside. Her flight uh, upward to the top of the tower and the craft landing on the ramparts. Azriel heads at once to a watchtower with King Ogunwe. Mrs. Coulter is left alone. We see everybody going about their business, heading upwards, upwards to important things where she is ignored, left behind. No one even asks her any questions about what happened to the other intention craft. They don't seem to care. They ignore her as if she is invisible. In this way, she is likened to the witches whom she hated so much and feared when she was trying to find out the name by which Lyra's destiny might be known. And of course, Will also has that power of invisibility. Now, as she goes to the adamant tower, Azriel's quarters, she asks for some refreshments and for the alethiometrist, Basilides. 
he is, of course, working at his books, but he'll come shortly. A bit of scene setting next. The morning light, the cold that she feels, is in her bones, not just her flesh. This distinction is an interesting one. We hear a lot about the flesh, the soul, the spirit. It seems that the flesh itself can be distinguished between the exterior and the bones, something deeper. Pullman's, call it theology, of the body of incarnation is extremely prevalent in this chapter. And all these distinctions that he's fond of making. This one maybe we shouldn't push too hard on. It is, after all, kind of a cliche. But there does seem to be some truth to it. Now, Basilides with his nightingale demon comes in. He is another scholar, another alethiometrist, but of course, like all adult alethiometrists, he has to work with the books of reading. He agrees to take breakfast with her. He answers her questions about Lyra. Although his work has been taxing, he has managed to understand that Lyra is alive to answer her first question. But he has to qualify that. She is also in the world of the dead. Somehow, she and the boy have gone in together and opened a way out. The ghosts there will dissolve as their demons did upon entering the world again. And this, to them, appears the most sweet and desirable end. And that's nearly a quote from Keats's poem. He is meditating upon his own death. Apparently, the alethiometer has told him they did this because she overheard a prophecy that she would bring about the end of death. Now, the reader might wonder when she heard such a prophecy. It appears to be actually something that Azrael himself said to her at their meeting at Svalbard at his place of imprisonment shortly before the end of the first book. He says death is going to die. And she repeats this to Roger as she's interpreting what she did overhear of her destiny from Dr. Lancelius, the witch's consul, when he was talking to Father Coram. And she was not supposed to be hearing them. Now, when she talks to Roger, she says that she actually forgot all about it, sort of slipped her mind, until she was dreaming in the sleep induced by Mrs. Coulter. So in a complicated sort of way, Mrs. Coulter was responsible for Lyra understanding something more about her destiny. Now, we might also see the author's hand here revising as he better understood his own story here in the third book as opposed to the very first. And we'll see a bit more of that revision and a bit more heavy-handed perhaps by the end of this chapter. Anyhow. Mrs. Coulter is so relieved and, we might suppose, proud of her daughter that she has to go to the window to conceal her emotion before turning and asking more. She wants to know what will happen to Lyra, and she can't even form a question coherently. She knows the alethiometer can't predict. Now, this is a bit ironic because the very first prophecy we hear about, I think, comes from the Master of Jordan hearing from his alethiometer that there is a prophecy about Lyra. The portion of it that he reads has to do with her great betrayal. And of course, the truth of that betrayal is 
only understood, perhaps revised by the author, in this third book, In the World of the Dead, when she leaves her demon behind. The very betrayal that all witches, of course, must undergo. So Mrs. Coulter trails off, not forming her question fully. We don't know exactly what she was going to ask, but Basilides' answer is reassuring. Though she is suffering, she and the boy have their companionship, and the bomb did not hurt her. Of course, the bomb created a great abyss beneath all the worlds, which will be an issue here. But again, has a kind of unexpected benefit that redounds from it. Mrs. Coulter is so relieved and suddenly feels her exhaustion. She would like to sleep for months, for years, sort of like she was trying to keep Lyra asleep. The scene setting comes back here, the flags flapping in the wind, the rooks, harsh cries. We hear in them not just the uh, tumult outside, but also maybe an echo back to Lyra and Roger rescuing the hurt bird at Jordan College. She tries to sleep, but she cannot keep her eyes closed. The scene shifts now to Lord Asriel and King Agunwe, looking through a telescope at a mountain in the sky covered in cloud. It is very small, just a thumbnail size, but however much they magnify it, cloud is still cloud. So they can't tell what this thing is, and that very fact lets them know exactly what they're looking at. It is the so-called clouded mountain, also known as the chariot. This might refer to that little cloud in the James Joyce story. In turn, that goes back to the Book of Kings. The story of the chariot has to do with the rapture to heaven of Enoch, uh, in Genesis, this would be the regent known as Metatron, the voice of God. There's a book of Enoch in the apocryphal scriptures. And we had heard his story before from Baruch and Balthamus, but it's rehearsed here again. This angel who was once a man rules the kingdom now in the stead of the authority. He intends to be directly involved in human affairs in all the worlds. They too have learned this from Baruch when he was spying, although they do not name him here. He is anonymous. They understand then the stakes of this battle have to do with preventing such direct intervention, a permanent inquisition worse than any they've experienced, and they understand that it would be guided by a fearsome intelligence capable of keeping a mountain aloft. They, in a way, appreciate the old authority by contrast with this new one. He had the grace, a very interesting word, 
to withdraw and leave the dirty work to his priests, whereas this one would invade directly. The question we might ask is why suddenly this change, and we'll see that Azrael has a theory about that. Now, their perspective on the mountain is distant. They cannot penetrate the cloud around it. This might make you think also of the cloud of unknowing, an anonymous middle uh, medieval uh, text on mm, contemplative meditation and prayer. Um, at least the explanation there, if we could distill it, seems to be that unknowing has a mystical dimension to it. And perspective on the distant and perhaps unattainable truth is no less valuable for that. Uh, might actually get closer to the truth by perceiving our own uh, weakness, our own humility. So there's a complex interplay of imagery here. And I think this is part of the revision, both of Mrs. Coulter's character and actually Azriel's character as well, that we're about to get. So this is kind of Azriel at his most proud and ambitious, but he's going to shift into a different key shortly. They see what looks like smoke pouring out of the mountain, flowing against the wind. It's angels, flocks, and millions of them like the starlings at the palace of the Emperor Kang Po. So we're in Azriel's head here briefly. He has seen these starlings at this exotic palace, like something from Coleridge's fever dream uh, of Kublai Khan. These angels stream away to north and south, and the cloud swirls and parts for a moment before being drawn as if by an unseen hand to conceal everything again. They see in that moment guns, machinery, a whole complexity of it, and perhaps that intelligence seeing them. They wonder if he can see through the cloud or if he needs to part it in order to see out. There are machines that can see through clouds in some worlds, uh, perhaps talking about security cameras and the like. Um, now, Azriel, in a bit of bravado, says, if those angels are all, then we can defeat them. And Ogunwe gasps in astonishment and in despair. But Azriel encourages him, saying, they haven't got this, holding his arm, and then places his hand on his cheek. So roughness and tenderness are mixed here. It gets very dramatic, perhaps melodramatic here, that few and short-lived and weak-sighted as they are, they, humans, are still stronger than the forces of the authority, the angelic beings. Azrael thinks that the angels' envy of their bodies fuels their hatred. They long to have bodies, and Metatron in particular, to have a body again, perhaps. One adapted to the good earth, and one with force, italicized here, 
to drive with determination and sweep away their infinite numbers like a hand through mist, a very interesting reversal of the image we've just seen. Ogunwe protests they have allies with physical bodies from all the worlds. But Azriel, of course, does too. And he wonders if those angels are going to look for Azriel's daughter. And now the dramatic summary kicks in full gear. She tricked the kingdom from the king of the bears. She went down to the world of the dead to let out all the ghosts. And that boy, he'd like to shake his hand. And they might not have known what they were getting into when they started this war, but the authority didn't know what they were getting into once Lyra got involved. Now, Agunwe points out that Azriel doesn't really know what Lyra's uh, involvement exactly means. They don't fully understand her importance either. But that connection that they have, physical and emotional, is what they're going to uh, place the utmost importance on. It's going to become the meaning of their struggle at this late stage. So the plot has to move along here. Asledes has gone to the Lady Coulter. He's worn out from reading, but he must keep going. And one more thing, they need to summon Madame Oxenteel, the second in command behind Lord Rope, to offer their condolences. At this point, the army is all assembled. They fly over the mountain looking for an opening, but the clouds do not part again. Clouds roll out, endlessly renewed, but no more angels go in or out of the mountain. The sun sinks, the colors of the sunset recall Lyra's howl of anguish when she finds Roger taken by what she thinks are the gobblers. Of course, turns out to be Mrs. Coulter herself, perhaps, uh, or perhaps some of her minions. And in the dark, the clouded mountain glows from within. We get a look at the weapons and reinforcements of Azriel's forces and important reinforcements, armored bears, witch clans, and the glimmer of camps spread out below. Now, there are spy angels at the corners of the compass. This world of Azriel's becomes a kind of image of the alethiometer itself. Um, his thirst for exploration and understanding and knowledge is in a way represented in the world he has sought to make anew. Um, now it is actually midnight and there's a conference in the tower between Azrael and his captains. We enter this conversation at the point where something they've just heard has made Azrael turn pale and tremble. The reader, Basilides, his hands shaking, accepts wine offered. It's Tokai, of course, the very first chapter of the first book. The thing that almost poisoned Azrael, but instead leads to Lyra's involvement in this story. 
And the thing he's just heard is that they have uh, they have to protect Lyra, that she is the most important key to overthrowing the authority at last. Asriel says this means they have a new objective, that they must find the demons here in this world. So the demons of the two children have made it to this world. And he summarizes again here. Metatron is intent on capturing them, thereby controlling the children and ensuring the future is his forever. Their job then is to find the demons first and keep them safe until they can be reunited with Will and Lyra. They don't know yet what form the demons have because they are not yet fixed. To make it extremely clear, every conscious being now depends on these children and their demons being brought back together. Azriel sighs as if coming to the end of his long complex calculation, finding his answer makes unexpected sense. It's the kind of moment of realization that Pullman is so fond of, and he takes the opportunity here to drastically change some elements of his story, or at least to change the way that we are to interpret what we've seen happen in the story. That goes for Azriel's character, that goes for Mrs. Coulter's character, and for this war against the heavenly authority, it suddenly appears to take on a very different shape. Now, Azriel places King Agunwe in command of the forces in defense of the fortress. Madame Oxenteel is to dispatch her people to search for the demons at once, help them stay alive long enough to escape to another world with Will and Lyra, and the knife, that blue hawk that is inherited from Lord Roke, uh, is a kind of a variation on the nightingale theme here, the bird at midnight, the owl of Minerva, perhaps the owl of knowledge, the bird of knowledge uh, spoken of in Hegel's preface. Um, now, Zephania, Zephania gets a chance to talk about her past here. She was exiled long before the regent took command, and she has not seen Metatron, but she knows he was once a man. He must be strong and would relish hand-to-hand -hand combat where most angels would avoid it. He must be strong in every way, she says. And this seems to give Azrael an idea. We see Azrael through Agunwe's eyes here. His friend takes on a kind of extra charge, she says. Azriel suspects that there are fractures from that bomb that opened the abyss and that ways down to it have opened nearby. So along with searching for the demons, they're going to find some of those fissures and fractures. He wants to go and destroy Metatron. And we can perhaps see the outline of his plan here. But his part, he says, is nearly over. Um, it turns out that the knife being able to kill the authority himself is actually not the key information that Azriel needed, but some combination of what Zafania, Zafania has just told him and what he has just learned from Basilides and from the alethiometer. That's his purpose. And 
Mrs. Coulter is a part of it. He says to leave her alone, but ruefully acknowledges she has never failed to surprise him. So maybe he's doing her an injustice. She will indeed be a part of this final conflict. So he says, their republic has come into being for the sole purpose of helping Lyra. It's the same from the other direction as what Father MacPhail said about the magisterium, that its whole purpose was to destroy and prevent another fall. We go then to Mrs. Coulter, lying in Azriel's bed. It's unclear if he was also there with her at some point. She's longing to hear his voice, but can't make out the words. She thinks that they're doomed, is what she tells him when, she, when he comes in. And the warm light and seeking to propitiate from her demon and his, as he rolls up a map and feigns indifference, she asks what will happen. She wants to know where Lyra is. And he hasn't answered her first question, and he won't. Um, again, this idea that prediction is not truly possible. We um, won't try. But then she surprises him. Uh, she says that they should have married and brought up Lyra together. He doesn't respond. She goes on and shifts again to the idea of oblivion, that that would be much worse than pain and torture, because at least they would be conscious but the dark and everything going out forever, that would be the worst imaginable. So she too is thinking of the world of the dead and the abyss below it. He listens to her with profound attention, not needing to respond as she pours out her heart. He doesn't understand uh, the, the movement of her thoughts, but her interpretation of him seems to be the thread that connects them. She thought that he hated Lyra and could understand if Azriel hated her, Mrs. Coulter, but she never hated him. Um, she thinks now that when he said that strange thing on the bridge to the stars that will destroy dust forever, he actually meant the very opposite. She asked him, why didn't you tell me you were really trying to preserve dust, not destroy it? He says that he thought she would prefer a lie, that he wanted her to come, and thought by telling her that he was destroying dust that she would. And she says, that's what I thought. So she too has reinterpreted what she heard there and come to an unexpected conclusion. This takes me, at least, by surprise. I think would take most readers by surprise to see somewhat out of the blue such an important passage and such an important part of Azriel's character being turned on its head. I think that the strongest evidence against this being the original authorial intention is that Azriel says very much the same thing to Lyra herself, where he is talking to her in his library, in his study, and he tells her, 
that he's going to destroy the source of dust, the source of that desire to destroy things. So it's a bit paradoxical, a bit unclear, but that seems to be saying that he is indeed seeking to destroy dust, original sin. But perhaps he has reinterpreted original sin at that point, and we as the reader are in the position of Lyra, not fully understanding what he's talking about. I think the most likely thing is that Pullman himself had no idea where his story was going at that point, uh, or what exactly his characters were talking about. And only later did he fully understand how their words then could be put into a new light that is consistent with his vision for the end of the book. It'd be a question I would love to get his thoughts on, but I very much doubt that he would answer. Now, Mrs. Coulter is almost fainting, but then her senses come back pitilessly. This is very much like when Azriel has that idea earlier, that idea that we will see the results of shortly uh, to do with the abyss, to do with Metatron's pride and his strength. She asks him, is this the end of everything? And he says, nothing. And then like someone in a dream, she goes to get her pistol from the rucksack and no one knew what she would have done next. This is some of the most melodramatic, but also surreal, spooky, suicidal, uh, midnight action and thought and discussion that we get in these books. It's some of the most difficult to take um, charitably as a reader um, because it seems that Pullman is flip-flopping here uh, and grasping at drama that may not be fully deserved. But we've had that spy thriller uh, at St. John Lezo and the bomb, uh, and now we have this noirish encounter, uh, this Casablanca-esque encounter between the lovers. Um, it's interrupted anyway, because the demons have been seen uh, the orderly comes up the stairs, and then Azriel uh, goes after him, transfigured, the, the fatigue all gone, shouting orders, um, and she loses sight and can't overhear anymore once he's halfway down the stairs. We're left in the lamplight, the wild wind, a subtle and complex expression on her unnamed demon's face, and a strange note about their age, their 35 years of life. The demon knows at once what she thinks they should do, and they depart. Chapter ends. In the battle on the plain, the passage comes from William Blake again, from an image of his emanation of Albion, a name for England, as a giant hunched over, clutching a text that reads, uh, each man is in his specter's power until the arrival of that hour when his humanity awake, the scroll goes on and cast his specter into the lake. Now, apparently, the original Rossetti manuscript 
reads, this world is in the specter's power until the arrival of that hour, until humanity awake and cast his own specter in the lake. There's an unfinished stanza that follows, and there to eternity aspire the selfhood in a flame of fire, till then the Lamb of God. That's where it ends. So says the wiki source on this line, each man is in his specter's power. Uh, William Blake, primary sources of Pullman's thoughts on original sin, on innocence and experience. Um, and this is a moment of reversal that Blake is talking about, speaking prophetically, poetically. And of course, we just saw an important reversal. We'll get more of this as we go along here. This is, in some sense, the climax of the story. Uh, but like so many scenes of action and violence, what's much more important to Pullman here is what's taking place in the human scale uh, for his characters, for Will and especially for Lyra. So the children, they find it desperately hard to leave that sweet world under the stars where they brought the ghosts out into the night, have to go back into the dark to find their demons. It's unclear exactly why or how they know this, but presumably the alethiometer has told them. Um, it might also be something that uh, Will's father knows from his mysterious sources. Uh, anyway, the alethiometer guides them crawling along for hours as Lyra keeps checking it for the 20th time, whimpering in pain, tenderness, a tearing of her breath, a leadenness of her thoughts. Those ladders of meaning she used to climb confidently have gone loose and shaky. The connections she traced like running or singing or telling a story so natural are now laborious, her grip on them failing. But this is perhaps because Pan is gone, that's the main reason, perhaps because of that near disaster where she fell into the abyss and was rescued by the harpy. So the pain and weakness are mixed with a kind of self-knowledge that is new for her and self-awareness. Now, there is something natural about telling a story, but there is also something full of effort and care and attention uh, that Pullman might be pointing towards here. Lyra is making that important transition from innocence to experience in her reading of the alethiometer as in everything else. But it's not far. She knows there's going to be danger. There's a battle. They come to the smooth rock covered in water and cut there. But before they go through, we get some important reminders from the ghosts. Lee Scoresby, in some of his most poetic speech, says that they'll have all the time in the world to drift and find the atoms of Hester, his mother and his sweethearts. He tells Lyra to rest when this is over. Life is good and death is over. She can't hug him or kiss him, but her look of passion gives him strength. The short lives 
of the Galavespians are nearly over. They will return to the world of the dead as ghosts, but they vow with a glance to one another to stay with the children and say not a word about their dying. The harpy, silent and grim, is getting a new name here. Lyra tells her, thinking about how she saved her and has agreed to guide the ghosts to their freedom. She wants to give her a name like York Bernison gave her hers, Silver Tongue, and she calls the harpy Gracious Wings. It's repeated a few times here. It is like her name, Silver Tongue, a uh, combination of attribute of physical and uh, spiritual or internal. Um, so she says that so they'll see one another again soon, and she won't be afraid if she knows that Gracious Wings is here. They do embrace, and she does kiss her. And now they come to the world of the Republic, where their demons are, where the battle's going on. The uh, voice of Tialis, again, comes out to speak to the ghosts, that they have seen this world before, and that there's a fortress that Azrael will be defending. Um, Will's father is there, and it makes Will think of his mother, how much he would like to see her. And the knife is nearly broken again. It's stuck in the air. But Lyra tells him to look at her and focus on her. And we get description, physical, frank, but also bespeaking the feelings and connections between the two of them. And again, the idea of the friendly scent of her flesh that seems to stand in for much more than just the physical outward sense of that word. The knife comes loose and he tries again. Now they are overwhelmed by noise and light. Um, the ghosts who recover their senses first are the warriors experienced in battle. These scores be and uh, John Perry. We get a few scenes of battle then uh, as rockets and battling angels, witches, galavespians, and pilots of flying machines uh, shoot arrows and explode and attack one another. But before they rush out, uh, John Perry has Will open a smaller window to look and see that the attackers are withdrawing. The flamethrowers, their poison sprayers, are disengaging from the battle, they wonder why. They see the drifting specters. The children, too, see them for the first time, like gauze or floating thistledown falling from the sky. And the soldiers are startled to hear the children's voices. Um, an African with a cat demon from Lyra's own world is as if caught in an invisible net for all his bravery, his courage. He's helpless fighting against a unbeatable nausea. But the ghosts, of course, can fight those things in the strangest battle they can imagine. I think it's Will, particularly, the strangest battle he can imagine uh, en engulfs them. The pale forms of the ghosts, with nothing to fear, wrestle with things they couldn't quite see. And that ghostly spectral combat, not exactly 
redundant here because those two meanings, again, are distinct for Pullman as they were for Blake, presumably, um, the ghosts and the specters. Will goes brandishing his knife, Lyra right beside him, wishing she had something she could fight with. There's this oily glistening in the air and they pass through with the shiver of danger. She thinks she can see the specters. Um, they come to a particular place, a hillside with hawthorn bushes, where they can see out to the western horizon, the clouds massed there, the forces in the lurid pre-storm light, the little figures on the battlements. And she feels that distant lurch of nausea that's the touch of the specters. She knew it at once. It tells her two things. She, she's grown up enough to feel and be attacked by the specters, and that her demon pan is close by. Then the feeling passes. Um, Will felt it too, but they they know that their demons must have escaped for now. Uh, so clearly they are still connected to their demons. That connection of feeling is not severed the way it was at Olvanger. Something else has happened here, uh, something they don't yet understand. Now, we get some sounds. Uh, the yawk yawk of the cliff ghasts, uh, who will play their role. Um, a rising of the wind. The sky, huge with storm, a kind of pregnant image here. It's queasy churning of, of disgusting, dark, uh, sick colors um, is punctured by the, uh, uh, the attack of the witches that we're getting in a minute. Now, first, nature itself, the trees and plants, blaze ardent and vivid, defying the dark. This is a perception that Mary will also have uh, in an important way in a couple of chapters. And some of Pullman's, again, floweriest, most poetic writing here, the two no longer quite children are stumbling through the battle and can see quite clearly quite clearly, the specters that were invisible before. So in that moment that their demons are attacked, um, a kind of realization comes to them of their own maturation. Uh, in turn, they can see the specters more clearly, it seems. The specters go straight through the wind. Um, and Lyre and Will, of course, have to fight against it and against all the physical obstacles. Um, for all that, they are together, hand in hand. Uh, so this juxtaposition, not just of angels, but also specters versus human beings. Now, the almighty crack of thunder, an interesting uh, descriptor there, uh, hits them like an axe, pushes them down, oppresses them. But then comes that sight that no one had seen that stirs their souls and lifts them up. It's the witches flying through the air, bearing torches of bitumen and pitch straight into the storm with roars and crackles. Um, their, uh, their river of fire bears down on the angels who come against them faster than arrows with the wind behind them. Uh, the witches dive, lashing with their torches and the angels outlined in fire tumble down. This is a picture straight out of the opening of Paradise Lost. Um, 
Now, if the commander in that storm meant to douse the fire, he was disappointed for the uh, sparks leap up in defiance. Uh, so the malice of Metatron and the authority here is juxtaposed pretty clearly against that image we saw before of uh, Dr. Grumman, as we knew him, John Perry, summoning the storm to take out the Zeppelins that pursued them. Um, Will and Lyra stumbling still, soaked now in the rain and, and chilled, call for Pan. The, the lightning is almost constant. It's like atoms being torn apart. So that knife of Bullvanger, the subtle knife. Um, but also a, um, a kind of synesthesia is taken on here. So our physical bodies are called in with all their senses, the thunder crash and pang of fear of something uh, we can feel. The wordless cry of Will, who knows what he lost but not her name, and, and Lyra calling for Pan. Uh, it's thrilling uh, writing here. And the chapter leaves off with a kind of uh, cliffhanger as the, the Galavespians are unable to help um, their allies are unable to see them because the colors of their dragonflies that they're looking for have long faded. Um, but a uh, unexpected movement now, another aircraft from the fortress, an ungainly, it must be the intention craft, um, piloted into the heart of the storm, um, briefly takes our sight upward before we're back down with the nausea, the blindly stumbling through the chaos of the wounded and the ghosts. Uh, so that's where we'll leave it for today. Apologies again for this long delay in uh, my attempt to comment on and, and reread these books. I um, do hope that I'll be able to get to this uh, shortly and, and catch up on things. When I left off, um, Pullman's new book, Serpentine, had just come out, and I had just gotten copies of his old books, his very first books. So I'm going to try to talk about those as well. I'll point out that there are a bunch of other books of Pullman that I have talked about now uh, and done short recordings of for Signum Academy. I've posted some links to those um, on the New School Notes blog, and I will try to make those available uh, for those who are interested in Pullman's other writing, uh, have short discussions of his grim fairy tales retelling, um, Scarecrow and his Servant, Clockwork, and The Firework Maker's Daughter. So I'll try to um, post some more uh, on Pullman in the near future here. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for your patience. <laughs>